came to Jonah a second time. So my name's Mike. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we're just going to keep rolling here because that word then, it's doing a lot of work in this passage, isn't it? Uh, did some time pass between these things? Like, is there, is there a period in which Jonah sort of recovers himself, goes back home, then gets the word from the Lord? Is it more like, you know, he staggers off the beach and on the road to Nineveh, which is quite a ways away? Is there some distance between what happened in the fish, where he got spewed onto land, and his response to God's call? Can you imagine this Hebrew prophet who's decorated in fish barf, stumbling along after his, his rough, rough days, uh, traveling the roads in response to God's call? The writer doesn't tell us. And I think that that's on purpose, because I think the writer is telling us that nothing in this passage matters except God's call and Jonah's obedience. And so I'm only mentioning this because there's been a lot of speculation, and there have been people who have been certain about one scenario or the other. Oh, yes, he had to have gone home, and the distance to the city was blah, blah, blah. Or, no, 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 he walked to Nineveh, and he, he was still gaping-eyed and, you know, bedraggled, maybe some seaweed in his hair still. That's not what the writer says, because the writer isn't interested in the background story. And so, interpretively, you and I get to look at Scripture, and we aren't solving the riddle of what was the event really like that wasn't described, but what is the point that the writer is making that is described? What is the writer trying to communicate with this passage? And that's what we're going to concentrate on this morning, which means that I'm not going to follow that speculation any further. Uh, this matter of timing is one of a couple of things in this passage that get debated. And the main thing I want to say is I don't ever want us to get caught up in speculating about what Scripture doesn't say, especially because it tends to distract us from what Scripture does clearly say. So, before we get any further, let me, let me just pray for us. God, we rely on you for communicating your message to us, and I thank you for your word that you've provided. Would you keep me from being an obstacle to its understanding this morning? Would you allow us to hear your voice as clearly as Jonah did and to do what he did, which was to live it out? And I ask that you would accomplish that in us by the power of your spirit through the work of Christ Jesus for your grace and your glory. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So, uh, I don't know. I was reading the news this week, and it was depressing. And uh, I was thinking about the world in which we live, and I thought about that popular 20th century American philosopher, Tupac Shakur, who observed the oppressive cycle of urban life in so many tears. My every move is a calculated step to bring me closer 
to embrace an early death, now there's nothing left. There was no mercy on the streets, I couldn't rest. I'm barely standing, about to go to pieces, screaming, peace! And though my soul was deleted, I couldn't see it. And whether those lyrics speak anything to you or not, what he's talking about and what he's recognizing is that he is part of a lifestyle that is destructive in nature and also that he's a victim of this lifestyle that's destructive in nature. And these words are haunting because ultimately he was physically and literally a victim of that culture. He was murdered at a young age. And it's easy to say, well, he lived that kind of life, and here in Santa Clara, things are different. But I want to tell you that every lifestyle that does not put God at the center is ultimately one that leads to death. And it doesn't matter whether it looks like gang membership to an outside observer or whether it looks like an HGTV special about somebody's really cool home. You say, Mike, I'm not tracking with you. Are you talking about Nineveh or Jonah? Yes, I am talking about Nineveh and Jonah and me and you. I love this book from the Hebrew Scriptures. I, I love its description of Jonah fleeing far away from what God had said to do and God himself and the misery and self-destruction that it brought on him. What Tupac was talking about Jonah lived in his own special way. There's a, an observational intelligence that's astute in both this Hebrew prophet writing and this 20th century American reporter and philosopher. I love this book's description of God's ongoing, purposeful mission to Nineveh which was caught in its own death-centered spiral. So let's look again at Jonah uh, chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to read these, and I, hopefully I've projected them in the, the ESV. Uh, once again, disclaimer, NIV and ESV, I think they're both good translations. I just like the way the language is in ESV in this passage. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying... And I already want to stop because this is such an incredibly hopeful verse. Jonah didn't lose his chance. As disobedient, as boldly disobedient as he was, God's not done with him. He heard the Lord clearly the first time, and he literally ran like hell in the other direction. God sent a storm. Jonah ended up in the sea to save some sailors. That's all good. God sends a fish to swallow Jonah and save him from drowning. Jonah finally recognizes that salvation is God's business and that maybe God can be trusted with that business. Okay, many of us have had that realization. People in this room, starting around the time usually when we found our head deep underwater and entangled with seaweed. And let's not skip past this verse. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In last week's passage, Pastor Tim, uh, he showed us that Jonah didn't first straighten up and fly right, and then God responded. Instead, Jonah is in full-on rebellion as God responds 
in increasing measure until Jonah, well, he taps out. And God says, I'm not just going to rescue you, I'm going to renew your purpose in this verse. I've got other people to rescue, and you are to be part of that whether it's what you wanted to do or not, you're going to go represent me, Jonah, in this foreign city far, far away. Believer, has God clearly communicated to you and you didn't act on it? You didn't put it into practice, even though we harp on that every week here? You didn't like it? That happens. You didn't want to believe it? You were too busy? Salvation comes from the Lord. If God saves you, he owns you, and he gets to use you even if you fumbled on the last play. I take a lot of confidence in that. And here's what Paul says in Ephesians 2.10 about those who are in Christ. We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to enjoy a luxurious lifestyle and not worried about any... Oh, I'm sorry, I don't know what translation that was. That was prosperity uh, translation there. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so God's not reliant on you and I doing the right thing of our own accord or even hearing him clearly and liking what he said. God's able to create us and draw us and persist after us in a way that ultimately we're going to accomplish his aims whether it's the way we wanted or what we wanted or not. Jonah's good work isn't something he wanted to do, but nonetheless, God commands him. In verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Ooh, call out against it. That sounds lovely, doesn't it? Jonah has a clear call from God for what to do. And I'm asking you, are you asking God what his will is for your life? I hear this all the time. Let me just answer it, what Jesus said, Mark 12, 30 and 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Oh, we're all on top of that, right? Okay, we've got the second one. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Okay, and once we're accomplishing those, we're all set, right? Nothing more to do, excellent. These things only become possible to love God and to love other people who don't offer you something that you mutually want. God provides that when you and I entrust our lives to King Jesus and say, I'm going to value what you value. God, will you continue to deepen my willingness to live my life as you direct? If you value the things he values, you're going to make life decisions that are in line with his values, with who he is and what he's done. If you're locked into a destructive kind of situation, whether it's like Tupac's or whether it's like Wrong Way Jonah's, the way out isn't to finally make a good decision. That still puts the power in your hands, and the power isn't in your hands. The way out is a new object of worship 
a new object of worship. The God who speaks again to Jonah, despite his rebellion, is the only worthy object of worship. And I've loved so many different things that fell so stinking short of that. My head was entangled with seaweed so many times, I feel like one of the stupidest people alive. And yet God continued to pursue me. And when I mess up this morning, God continues to pursue me and says, Mike, I want you to value the things I value. Don't be confused. This is not just Jonah's problem. The Hebrew scriptures are full of stories about the rebellion of God's own people. Their identity came from being God's people, or at least it started that way. The writers tell again and again how God saves the day. And his people not only take rescue for granted, they forget him, they turn to other things, they even actively cry out against God. So Moses and the Israelites escaped Egypt by God's direct intervention beyond all belief practically. And in Exodus chapter 14, 31, it says, And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Isn't that great? They chose to follow God. They saw God's power, and they're affected by it. And what happens in the next chapter? More victory. No, they start grumbling against Moses. And as time goes on, not just Moses is enough. They grumble against Moses, and they grumble against Aaron. And they work their way up until they are literally grumbling against God for having rescued them. Urgh. <laughs> I don't know how that's supposed to help you. Uh, <laughs> This tendency to grumble so characterizes them that I would say that grumbling is the prevailing tone of the Old Testament. Well, guess what? You've been in church very long. You know that grumbling is one of the primary modes of Christ's church, or at least the people who gather around it. And so let's go back to the Old Testament because that's easier, right? Okay, they put their trust in God, as they continue to focus on their own worries and concerns, that trust begins to fade. Jeremiah describes the death of relationship between God's people and God this way, from Jeremiah 7. For when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command, Obey me, and I will be your God, and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you, that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. When you tell them all this, they will not listen to you. That's got to be a great thing for a prophet to hear. Hey, here's the message, and by the way, I, as I give you the message, I let you know it's not going to work. Good job, good job, and probably you're going to suffer a lot in the process. Uh, when you call to them, they will not answer. Therefore, say to them, this is the nation that has not obeyed the Lord its God, 
or responded to correction. Truth has perished. It has vanished from their lips. The people of God become an anti-testimony of who God is because they are no longer following God, no longer interested in God, no longer trusting God, and no longer sustained by God. And yet, he keeps sending prophets. He keeps pursuing. It's like Jonah's not the first time that God has given somebody another opportunity. One of the most extreme examples of God's people ignoring him and taking him for granted is a less well-known story than that of Jonah. It's in the reign of Manasseh, who was the king of Judah. He was a son of a God-following king, okay, so that you'd think that would be a good thing, except his own reign was absolutely depraved. So I'm going to read from Second Chronicles, and I may, I may skip here and there because it's, it's a longish passage, but I want you to hear what happens in the life of Manasseh, uh, what the outcome is. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Okay, bad situation already, right? Anybody know a 12-year-old? And he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. That's a really long reign. He did evil in the sight of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. These high places, altars, and poles are all places of worship of the Canaanite gods who had preceded Israel in the land. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshiped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, my name will remain in Jerusalem forever. You want to talk about taking God's testimony of himself away. Ha, I'll show you. I'll turn this into a, a place of worship of somebody else, of a bunch of other people. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire. He practiced divination and witchcraft, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritists. I'm sorry, I'm going to read that again. He sacrificed his children in the fire. Up is down, black is white. This guy is awful. He took the image he had made, put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. You want to talk about distracting? Instead of being the temple to God, this is now the temple to whatever. It's a spiritual bazaar, and I find it bizarre. Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. That's, that's when the apple has gone bad. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria. Uh, what city is a one-time capital of Assyria? Nineveh. Okay, just there is a connection here. It's not just Mike's tangential mind here. They took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose to drag him around with, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, oh, the seaweed's thick for this guy, 
he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. You go, boy, that's a convenient conversion. I'm reading from the book of Chronicles. The book of Kings doesn't even mention this. The book of Kings says this guy's influence was so evil, tough luck. And yet here's this weird thing, this demonstration of God's grace, because what's God's response? When he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterwards, he rebuilt the wall. He stationed military commanders. More importantly, verse 15, he got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the other altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem. And he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings, not children, on it, and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. God had told them not to do that. Manasseh's influence as an evil king continued to go on after Manasseh had had a change of heart. But you want to talk about somebody who doesn't deserve salvation? I got this guy. And what is God's response to him? He heard his plea and he responded. So if, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, you're too bad for God, you've had too many additional chances, I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. That if you are ready to repent and to submit yourself to him, he's got something to do with you as well. He didn't literally flee like Jonah, Manasseh, but more like we do today. He filled his life with distractions and with contradictions to what he should have been believing. His disbelief in God's authority and his power had to be forcibly dispelled, but God was willing to do that, and even someone as awful as Manasseh repented. So have you filled your life with things that dis distract you from God? Um, look, I, I quoted from Tupac today, and I'm going to do it again. So obviously I'm not suggesting that we live in some kind of a cave, but I am saying that it's possible nonetheless, to get fixated on some stuff that's unhelpful. If you think about what Jonah was doing, he wanted to be in a righteous cave. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted to be among the good people. And that's not God's plan for Jonah. He wants Jonah to mingle. He wants Jonah to get out there and get gritty with the people of Nineveh because God has intended to use him as a messenger where you and I, like Jonah, might see those people, however you define them, God is able to say, those can be my people. And that's pretty confidence-inspiring. So, let me return at last to our primary text. Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. 
So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Wow, a great city before now, an exceedingly great city. Three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown! Whoa. Well, you want to talk about a non-seeker-sensitive message. It really doesn't get any worse than that. This is purely a message of justice. It sounds like stuff I heard occasionally on the street corners in Berkeley, and uh, I, I was a believer and I was unconvinced. But there's a, there's a bit of that in Scripture. If you look at Acts chapter 2, you see in verse 22 through 24 part of Peter's sermon at Pentecost. At Peter's first big sermon, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. You killed Jesus, Peter says, but he defeated death. In 40 days, Jonah says, your doom is sure. And there's no secondary message of mercy from God. There's another distraction here. Uh, people want to argue about what the three days across and one day in journeys mean about the size of the city. And there are people who are certain that Nineveh was enormous, much bigger than these, and other people who are certain that it couldn't have been anywhere near this big. And this text isn't intending to answer that question. What this text is telling us is Jonah has a path to go out in order to reach the people of Nineveh. And he does not have to go the entire length of the city before there is a response. He gets a third of the way into his planned sermon tour, and what happens? Well, people respond. Okay, the idea that this message of doom would find a hearership is hard for us. The idea of God's judgment and anger are dangerous topics in our day and age. But these aren't exclusively Old Testament ideas. The John who baptized people, including Jesus, said this in John 3, the Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Paul describes God's wrath in this way, Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what, he is, what has been made so that people are without excuse. And being without excuse is part of the bad news that you and I have to contend with. 
People do all we can to deny what Paul has said here so that we can say we don't need help. There's such good news once we realize how dangerous our situation is, once we can admit that to ourselves. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11 says, Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if... While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're not just out from under God's wrath. We are now in God's household. We're now his children. We're now his friends. We are now in relationship with him in a way that's going to sustain this. If you're in Christ, God's wrath has been taken care of, and not only is God no longer angry with those who have been entrusted to Jesus, he gives us that new life that we needed. But Jonah doesn't know anything about this. He doesn't apparently say anything about God's mercy to the Ninevites, which makes their response all the more surprising. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So sackcloth would have been rough cloth, probably made by hair or with hair. It'd be uncomfortable to wear, and it signifies that I'm in mourning. I'm repentant, like wearing black in our day, perhaps. A fast is a purposeful change in diet, and in this case, it is certainly to show repentance. What is real repentance? Here's what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at, that, at the judgment with this generation, Jesus' peers, and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. What greater than Jonah is here? That's right, good answer, it's Jesus. Jesus is confirming that the repentance of this group of Ninevites is real. That's the contrast that he's making. You who are godly people in your own minds, you Pharisees, you Sadducees, you religious observers, you have nothing compared to what the people of Nineveh, who didn't have any of your advantages, understood when Jonah went through and preached condemnation because it made those people in Nineveh aware that there was a God who was warning them. So the people of Nineveh obviously know nothing about Jesus, but they knew they had a problem. The writer doesn't say that Jonah told them God's complaint is this. Uh, back in God's original message to Jonah, he specified that it was Nineveh's wickedness. But they knew they had a problem. They knew they wanted to change. Are people different today? We want to tell ourselves and probably each other that everything really is okay, whether we're in the HGTV special version of life or whether we're just struggling to make it. And here's what Tupac said in Changes about the need to survive. He said, we got to make a change. It's time for us as a people to start making some changes. Let's change the way we eat, let's change the way we live, and let's change the way we treat each other. You see, the old way wasn't working, so it's on us to do what we got to do to survive.
but there hasn't been enough change in the way we treat each other. Tupac himself was gunned down at age 25. People haven't stopped treating each other that way. So what do we do? We can certainly do no less than the people of Nineveh. We start by responding with grief for where we have sinned against God, for our own wickedness, and repenting, turning away from our sin as God reveals it to us. The thing is, doing this in our own strength, it's never going to work. Remember what Paul said. I'm going to read it again. Romans chapter 5, verses 9 for 11. If while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We have a new life to live in Christ. We don't have to change our diet in order to live this life. Though we could. If that's how God directs us, once we're following Christ, okay. But as soon as I want to take it into my own strength, I know I'm off. The bad news is we were God's enemies. The good news is that he has done everything required for us to be called his friends. He's done that through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ Jesus. Becoming friends of God through Jesus will change every single thing about us that we assumed could never be changed. That may not happen quickly, but sometimes it does, and it will happen. I want to dip into one last detail from our text today. In Nineveh, it wasn't one class of people who responded, from the greatest of them to the least of them. Isn't it interesting that that was included? This wasn't class-oriented. It wasn't that the poor are righteous or that the wealthy are privileged. Everybody saw that God had a, a real claim against how they were living. Jesus called us to do more than acknowledge that there are classes. In Luke chapter 14, he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, and he told them in this parable, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. A person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who has invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you'll have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or your sisters, your relatives, your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. They cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus calls us to a whole new pattern of living, and when we take his life on, this idea that I no longer associate with my class and sneer at everybody else has to be part of what goes away. Nineveh responded as a whole. Do we respond as a whole? Do we love the entire city of Santa Clara and our region, or do we prefer certain communities? 
let's be a place in which people of every kind join together to worship God in gratitude for our Savior. So in our passage today, uh, Jonah got a do-over on his first response to God's call. He gets a second chance, and that reminded me of Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. So in Groundhog Day, Bill gets by trial and error eventually to have a good outcome and get out of the trap of this cycle of doing it wrong and failing and doing it wrong and failing and doing it wrong and failing. And if you ignore certain assumptions, it's a pretty charming movie. Uh, What's wrong with Groundhog Day? Well, the first thing is we don't get an infinite number of chances. So we're not promised to hit age 40. We're not promised 40 more days from today. None of us are promised that. And so we've got to recognize that we we don't want to keep flailing. What's worse than that is what we're doing is never enough. What Bill did in that movie was what got him out of the cycle. And what you and I do will never, ever get us out of the cycle. But Jesus... God made a way to break us out of that cycle. And by submitting ourselves to Christ, entrusting our lives to him, and letting his life dictate what we're about, that's how we get out of the cycle. We're going to continue to talk about Jonah and uh, his, his ongoing journey. But the good news is that God enables a person to come to Christ in the first place. And then he sustains us by the power of Christ, the one who rose from the dead. John says in chapter 6, Jesus went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God.